The Bob Murphy Show, episode 166. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Oh, this is a fun one. We've got two little components for this episode. First, I want to tell you about my contest for what I call adventures in pacifism. And then I'm going to tell you about arrows and possibility theorem. You say, Bob, this sounds like any old podcast. No, no, no. This is very different. No one else starts out with adventures in pacifism as a contest and then talks about arrows and possibility theorem. Some might do one, some might do the other, but never both in the same episode. So the first one, this is the contest. As many of you know, I am a pacifist. And so what I like is seeing situations where it's just crying out for someone to use violence to solve the problem. And so then it's a a challenge for someone like me to say, what could somebody do in that situation that doesn't involve violence and yet gets out of the situation? So specifically in this one, I was going down a YouTube rabbit hole and somehow I saw a thing in the sidebar there that it was from the show Louie, you know, starring... Louis C.K., and the title of the YouTube clip was, uh, when was the last time you got your ASS kicked? I don't know if, for some of you, if that's a word you don't want me saying with your kids in the car. All right? And so you click it, and I, I actually didn't watch the show, incidentally. I, I, I think I knew of it, but I, I didn't really watch it. But anyway, it was the acting in the scene was incredible, both from Louis, but also from the guy who plays this high school kid, this bully. And uh, I think I'll go ahead and just describe it to you here. Obviously, you're going to want to go review it for yourself if you want to participate in the contest. But the gist of it is Louie comes into this diner with this woman who you think they're on a date. And then as the scene progresses, you realize, yeah, it's definitely a date and either a first or a second date based on, you know, the, the, the conversation. Because she's like, so when did you get into, into comedy? And he's like, oh, well, it was in high school, actually. And she's like, oh, and so they're, so you can tell. At first, you're not sure, like, is she just interviewing him or something, or is it a date? But then as it progresses, you can tell it's a date. So actually, even now as I'm telling you, I think I think we can safely say it's a first date. So as they're talking, again, in this diner, and they're sitting, like, in one of the tables where, like, the table comes out of the wall, and there's, like, the, the bench seating, if you can picture that, kind of a setup. And so then these rowdy high school kids come in, and you you think they're high school because they have the the jackets on, you know. Um, and they're just, they're just being obnoxious just goofing around and pushing each other and talking about girls in a crude way and stuff like, you know, they had just come from a party or something and, oh, did you see what she did this? You know, that, that kind of stuff. Just being real. And they're so loud that Louie and his date can't hear each other talking and he's kind of like rolling his eyes and looking at them like, oh, look at these jerks, right? And so finally, so that they walk, the, the kids walk past Louie and his date and then go like deeper into the diner. And so they're behind Louie. Like, so Louis seated such that his back is to them. And so at, at some point, because, you know, he really can't hear the date talking, Louis turns over 
you know, look like looks over his right shoulder, looking back at them. Is like, hey, fellas, can you keep it down? You know, it's hard to hear our conversation here. Thanks. And then he turns back. Right. So he doesn't even make eye contact. He just kind of yells it at them. Like, okay, the adult finally has to speak up here, guys. Come on. Right. That's the, that's the tone. And then, you know, and he looks at the kind of rolls. Like, Come on, kids, what are you going to do? Right. So then this, one of the kids walks up and this is critical. He's, he's not a big guy, right? It's not like some big intimidating guy. Like if he was walking, you know, if you were if it was late at night and you were on the street and this kid was walking towards you, you wouldn't be afraid of him, right? It's not like he looked menacing in any way. But on the other hand, he looks wiry and resilient, right? So he's not like some little nerdy kid either. And so he walks up and he's like, hey, and he sticks his hand out to shake Louie's hand. He's like, I'm, I forget his name. Let's say Sam. He goes, I'm Sam. And Louie's like, uh, you know, like, nice to meet you or something. And the kid goes, oh, hi, Mr. Nice to meet you. W what's your name? And Louie, hey, Louie. And the kid's just standing there. And it's very awkward. Like, even just you watching the scene, you're, you feel awkward. And he's like, hey, were, were we being too loud back there? Were we bothering you? And Louie's like, well, yeah, actually, you were. Just, you know, trying to have a conversation here. He goes, oh, oh, geez, huh, okay. And it's clear the kid is, is messing with them. And he's not walking away, right? So that's why the, the awkwardness is growing. And, and then the kid, like, sticks his hand to the date's face and, and says, um, you know, hey, I'm Sam. And she just kind of looks away. Like, she doesn't, she doesn't shake his hand. So already you see in the way this scene is evolving, this kid has already established dominance vis-a-vis Louis whereas the date is actually doing a better job of like not playing along with what this kid is doing, if you get what I'm saying. Like already because Louie shook the kid's hand, whereas the date's like, no, I'm not touching you because she knows that the kid's just messing with them and that she's, she refuses to play along with this. So the kid does not leave and he's just standing there. Like, like in other words, he's standing where the waitress would be standing if she were taking their order, right? Just hovering over them. And so then the scene quickly escalates where the kid goes, let me ask you something, Louie. When's the last time you got your ASS kicked? And Louie goes, what? And he goes, you heard me. When's the last time you got your ASS kicked? And Louie's like, <laughs> and again, so the, the acting is, is great. It both the, from the kid and Louie's perspective. It's really, it's a really good scene. Well, I mean, and the, the woman playing the actress, or the woman playing the actress, the, the actress playing the, the date is also good too, but she doesn't do too much. It's more, she's just sitting there reacting with her facial expressions, the dialogues between Louie and the kid. And uh, it's, it just escalates. And, and finally, the kid's like, um, I want you to apologize to me. And then I'll walk away. And Louis is like, I'm not going to apologize. He goes, yeah, I want you to Oh, I'm sorry. One other thing I should mention. The kid holds up his hand and shows that his knuckles are all bloody, like, like scabbed over. And he was like, yeah, yeah. I, I took this guy out three days ago. Just by just pummeling his face, teeth everywhere. Do, do you, you realize, right? Louis, that if I wanted to, I could just put you in the hospital or something like that along those lines. So the kid's really, it's not playful. Like he, he amps it up and, you know, and Louis's looking at him and whatever. And so, and as Louis's deciding what to do, obviously there's a part of you, the viewer, that you want him to just blast the kid's face. And then, but what Louis decides to do is to apologize. And then the kid rubs it in. He goes, no, that's not good enough. Say it again, say it better. And so then Louie gives him a more earnest, sincere apology. And then the kid walks away and all the rowdy kids leave. And as they're leaving the diner, they're like, enjoy your date, Louie. And they all leave. So just completely emasculated. I mean, oh, 
it's, I encourage you to watch the th- whether you want to do the contest or not, watch the thing. Like it is, is great acting and it's just, you know, you're just like, oh, it's, it's like painful to watch. It's physically painful. Okay, so again, my question is, and what was interesting in the YouTube comments too, people were arguing and some of them were like, oh, Louis should have crushed that kid or like a real man would have crushed that kid or something like they understood the whole point of it was Louis was trying to show how inadequate he felt and he didn't know what to do and that kind of thing. And so people would identify with being in that kind of a situation. But other people were saying, well, no, what was he supposed to do? The kid is literally in high school. Like if Louis hurt the kid, you know, he could be liable for something. He's a, he's a grown man. So anyway, it was interesting thing. So again, my, my question, my challenge is I'm going to set up a blog post at, at my blog. So it's a consulting by our, well, I might as well finish it. It's a consulting by rpm.com, but you're not going to be able to find it depending on your year. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 166 to get the, the link for it. And so at the link, you know, I'll, I'll obviously put the YouTube video in there just so you can see the whole thing yourself. And then you're going to leave a comment and, and tell me, like, this is, this is what Louis could have done. And so the, here are the ground rules. Not only can you not use actual violence, you can't threaten it either. Okay? So, you, so it can't be that Louis says, you know, hey, I got a gun here. Or I'll tell you what, kid, you know, if you don't get out of here, I'm going to hunt you down and do blah, blah, blah to you. And then that's the way the situation ends. And you could argue, well, he technically didn't use violence. He didn't have to because he just had to threaten it. That, that's, that doesn't count, okay? On the other hand, you don't have to volunteer that you're a pacifist, all right? So Louis is allowed to do something that, again, well, again, those are the, only, the ground rules, all right? I don't want to elaborate and, and coach you towards what I think the answer should be. All right, so I have my own answer and I thought it would be fun to have a contest. So we'll take the top three winners. And what we'll do is I'll go through and pick the ones that I think are contenders, depending on the, the feedback we get. You know, if we get like a hundred entries, then I'll have to winnow it down a little bit. And then at, at the supporting listeners, Facebook group for the Bob Murphy show, for the people that contributed enough that they get into the secret special group. Um, and by the way, you would go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute for that if you wanted to yourself be a member. You can see the details on how to do that at bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. What I'll do then is I'll take the top contenders and then ask the people in that group and we'll set up a a voting mechanism. And of course, it'll be irrational since we're about to talk about Arrow's theorem and there's no way to amalgate the group's preferences. But then people will vote and they'll see whether it's, which answers are the best. And it'll be the third place I'll give you $25, the second place 50, and the top prize will get 100. But the thing that'll be fun is I'll put my own entry in there anonymously. All right, so I guess I'll have to technically leave a comment in my blog as if I'm some random person so that no sleuth can figure out which entry is mine. All right, and because I'm curious to see. So anyway, that's, that's the challenge. So hope you guys like that. Okay, now moving on to the main topic for this episode we're going to go over Arrow's impossibility theorem. And let me just mention, I'm doing this, the, the timing for this episode is I wanted to have it coincide that Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom, he always runs a really good uh, deal for Black Friday, Cyber Monday. And so he's doing that again this year. And if so it, if you like what you hear on this, I'm saying I have a longer explanation in my course that I have at Tom Woods's Liberty Classroom. So I have two classes on the history of economic thought. 
And so I cover Arrow's theorem for the, you know, the 20th century segment. And in particular, in one of the episodes, I, I go through the actual proof and I, and I show you, so I, you know, I upload the, the notes, like you can see the formal proof of it. And then I walk you through that thing. So um, there is that. So if this intrigues you and you're curious, that's an extra reason you should do it. Also, if you haven't checked, like if you looked at it a while ago and decided not to subscribe to Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, he has been getting new courses in. And I think the most recent addition is Michael Rechtenwald, the guy, you know, who many of you may have heard him. He was on Tom's show a few times. He was on my show once. Uh, so he was a former Marxist who then became disgusted with all the campus identity politics and ended up flipping and then was completely ostracized at NYU. And they put him in the, like the Russian department or something like that. They literally sent him to Siberia because of he was uh, heretical. So anyway, he has a class. I haven't, full confession, I haven't yet, or full, full disclosure, I meant to say, uh, I haven't listened to it yet. So I can't tell you that, ah, yes, it's great, but I'm assuming it's good stuff. And you might be interested in that. So last thing, if you do want to sign up for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom because you're listening to this episode, don't just go there. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 166 and use my link to click through because then there's a redistribution of wealth from Tom to me and that makes society better off. Okay, so what is Arrow's theorem? What does it do? It's basically something showing there are surprisingly strong bright line limits on our ability to take individual preferences and combine them into, quote, social preferences. And it's a very powerful result. And it's, to me, the, 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 it's analogous to Girdle's incompleteness theorems. So you guys, longtime listeners might remember it was way back in episode seven of the Bob Murphy Show. So you would go to bobmurphyshow.com slash seven if you want to see this, where I explain Girdle's theorem. And what's interesting is, to me, Girdle's theorem gets a lot of press. There's a lot of philosophers and computer scientists and political scientists, even a lot of people who make reference to Girdle's theorem. A lot of times, I don't think they really get what it's saying, kind of like with people cite Einstein's relativity, like, oh yeah, Einstein showed everything was relative or, you know, that's not what he showed. But um, with Girdle's theorem, that gets a lot of mentions. Yet Arrow's theorem, I don't barely hear anybody talking about it outside the narrow realm of uh, social choice theory. And yet it's an incredibly powerful result. And it might be, I'm just speculating here as to the why, that Arrow's theorem, at least superficially or prima facie, just shows how democracy doesn't work. And I don't mean like just in the sense of, oh, raw voting and, you know, a simple majority rule. I mean, no, like there's, there's no mechanism by which you could plausibly or coherently take a bunch of individuals and their own subjective idiosyncratic preferences and somehow combine them into saying what society wants. That Arrow really showed that, no, even in principle, you can't do that. It's, it's not possible intellectually, right? There's, there's something real fundamental about it. And so again, it's, I mean, it, everybody who goes into social choice theory or public choice, wherever they, they're aware of this now, like they, they would cover it in a standard course. Obviously this is a big result that Arrow found, but let, let me put it to you this way. 
I see way more people talking about how Arrow showed that the free market will fail in providing healthcare. And that's why we need government either, you know, subsidies or outright government provided health care or insurance at the very least. I see people do that all the time. I never see when there's a problem over an election, someone saying, well, you know, Arrow did show that there's no way we can possibly coherently gauge what the public wants, that that's a nonsense issue or, or, or concept. No, I, I never hear anyone talking like that. And yet, uh, I would say Arrow's work on social choice theory is way more fundamental than what he did with uh, healthcare. And by the way, in case you think I'm being hypocritical, it's like, well, okay, Bob, so how come you like Arrow when he talks about social choice, but you don't like him when it comes to his remarks on healthcare? It's because, as with most ostensible demonstrations of so-called market failure, even if it were fine, like even if you said, yeah, I'll go ahead and concede all that, it wouldn't follow that the government's going to do it any better, right? Like at best, all they've shown is the market mechanism in this setting doesn't work as well as in some other settings. Like maybe the market provides TVs more efficiently than it provides healthcare. That doesn't mean the market shouldn't provide healthcare and the government should, right? That's a totally separate question. You'd have to then assess why would we trust the political mechanism to outperform the market when it comes to healthcare with all of its strange attributes that make it different from the market for TV sets, all right? Okay, so what does Arrow's impossibility theorem do? First of all, you need to understand the framework. So what it's doing is it assumes that individuals have preference rankings, all right? So there's no cardinal utility functions in here. This is just a ranking from best to worst. And it's very abstract. So I did an article at Mises.org recently, which I'll link to in case you want that as a warm-up on this. And I was applying it to the election. So I had the candidates of Trump, Biden, and Joe Jorgensen for the examples I was doing there and just saying, okay, how would people rank them? You know, some one person like Trump best, then Biden, then JoJo, and then another person like Biden best and Trump second, and then JoJo like that. You know, you could do that. But this can be very abstract stuff. And also it can be very detailed, right? You could, so it's not just a matter of like, oh, one particular issue or uh, a different example I used when I taught this at Hillsdale was I said, suppose the class is trying to order a pizza. And so how do we, you know, different people have different preferences when it comes to pizza. Some people are like, oh, I'm pretty, you know, whatever, but just, you know, I can't stand anchovies. Or other people are like, no, I really need pepperoni to be on this pizza. You see, so that's a, a way of you know, getting the class to see how this, how does this work. And so the framework there that I used was to say, okay, we need to come up with, you know, given the restaurant and the available toppings and things like that and the different ways you could order, we need to figure out the set of all possible pizza orders we could make given this restaurant's menu, right? So you think that that's actually a big set, right? Because it, it, the way the Arrow's framework works, you can't, you can't plug in something like, oh, I'm fine just as long as there's no anchovies, right? Rather, what you'd have to do is come up with every possible type of pizza that could be ordered and then say to the person, rank them from best to worst. So for that person, you know, presumably all the pizzas with anchovies on them would be at the bottom, but then even there, you'd, you'd have to rank them and say like, you know, are some pizzas with anchovies worse in your opinion than others? Um, and so that's how you'd have to do it, okay? You're allowed to be indifferent in Arrow's framework, okay? So if the person says, no, I really don't care, it's just if there's anchovies, I don't like them. And if there 
as long as there aren't anchovies, then I'm fine. Well, then the way you would model that is you'd say, okay, you take all the pizzas that don't have anchovies and say they're all basically tied for best. And then they're all each taken two at a time better than anything with anchovies on it. And all the anchovies, the person's indifferent among all the you know possible pizzas that have anchovies. That's the way you would do it. Okay. But again, just to restate the framework, whatever the choice set is, whatever the set of things over which we're trying to decide, each person then can have a ranking of those things. And so you take any two elements at a time and the person can report whether the first is strictly better than the second, whether the second is strictly better than the first, or whether the person's indifferent. All right. So we assume the person is able to answer that. Right, so that's what the technically or formally the condition is. We'd say their preference ranking is complete because again, you take any two elements out of the set of all possible things and ask the person, "How do you feel about these two choices?" The person can always tell you either, "Oh yeah, I like the one versus the other," or "The second versus the first, or "I'm indifferent between the two. So again, be, to be clear. I'm not saying they have to strictly prefer one to the other. They, they're allowed to say I'm indifferent, but that's not the same thing as them saying, I don't know. Okay, so the person can never just say, I really don't know how I feel about those two things. I need more information. The person has to give you an answer, all right? So that's one assumption as to what people's preferences are like. Um, but other than that, like I say, it's, or, or to return to my original point, it's, it's very open-ended, okay? So don't, in case you're thinking, oh yeah, so this is you know applicable to something like picking a president or ordering a pizza, but in the real world, politics is very complex and there's lots of issues. And I'm saying technically, you, you could make each element in the choice set very specific. And you could say, okay, one particular outcome or state of the world says Biden's president, he has a healthcare plan that does such and such. We pull the troops out of Iraq. Da -da 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 -da. And you know, you could have a million different things that all go into describing what is this state of the world versus, you know, all the other states of the world that you enumerate and describe. And then you have each citizen subjectively ranking those possible states of the world, taking any two at a time and saying, of these two choices, which do you prefer or are you indifferent? And the person can give you a complete explanation and listing of their preferences. And then Further, you assume that each individual's um, preference ordering is transitive. You know, and actually, now that I'm saying that, I don't know if the individuals have to have transitive rankings. I don't, I'm, off the top of my head, I don't remember ever using that in, arrows, in the proof. But, you know, I think that, that that's, we'll, we'll go ahead and say that that's needed. Um, and then, that, and there you go. And so that's what the people have. And so now the question that Arrow raises is, given that you had all the rankings from all the people in society like that, we want to then have some mechanism by which we map from any possible ranking or you know, vector of rankings that the individuals in society would have over the choice set. We want to map from that into one single ranking that we're going to call society's preferences or the social ranking, all right? Now, there's lots of different ways of doing that. One obvious choice is simple majority rule that you say, okay, when it comes to um, picking any two elements two at a time from the possible set of outcomes and saying, does society like A versus B 
or, or like A more than B or like B more than A or think they're, in, they're the same, the, the size is different. And the way we would answer that is to say, okay, if we're using simple majority rule, the way we answer that question is to go and look and check and see how many people in society think A is better than B, you get a number, and how many people think B is better than A, and you get a number. And the people who think A and B are indifferent, you know, they don't, they don't affect the result. And then whichever one wins is the one society thinks is better. And if it's a tie, then you can say it's indifferent, right? That seems pretty straightforward, right? It's a simple majority rule. But there's a problem with that. And I don't mean a problem like, oh, well, what if, you know, it's saying, should we kill redheads for sport and the redheads vote no and the non-redheads vote yes or enough of them vote yes so that they win the election. And that's, we don't like that. That's not what I'm saying. I mean, that's true, <laughs> right? Just because people by majority rule vote to kill redheads, that wouldn't make it morally correct. But I'm saying the objection we're going to raise in terms of mechanism design, in terms of social choice theory to majority rule is not the majority might vote for something monstrous. The objection is going to be because it has to be able to handle um, all of the different permutations of possible rankings, you could come up with a possible situation in which the social rankings violate what's called transitivity. And so I, I walk through an example in the Mises.org article if you want to see it spelled out. But the idea is it's possible that doing simple majority rule that choice A gets more votes than choice B. So you'd say A beats B in an election if you're just doing simple majority rule. But if you instead looked at B versus C, that society would, you know, B would get more votes than C. So B would win that election. And so you say, okay, so if A beats B and B beats C, you would think that if you had A and C in a standalone election, that A would get more votes. But no, it's entirely possible that C gets more votes in a situation like that, right? So this is nothing, you know, this isn't some crazy scenario. I, I give an example where, just the way people are that maybe people think like Trump would get more votes than Biden and Biden would get more than Joe Jorgensen and Joe Jorgensen would get more than Trump and they're ups. So now you're stuck. Okay. Because it, then what happens is, so the, the, the formal problem is the social rankings don't obey transitivity, which says if A is better than B and B is better than C, then A should be better than C. And if you say, okay, well, who cares? Maybe that's just some arbitrary criterion. Well, among other problems with it, besides just being a little bit weird, is that if you do have a social ranking system that violates transitivity, then the order in which you have the elections can affect the outcome, right? So if you, again, if you have a, a system like that where taken two at a time, A beats B, B beats C, and C beats A, you can guarantee, you know, the, the people kind of running the show, if they knew that, they could just do the order of the elections and the runoffs and whatnot to get whatever candidate they wanted to be the winner, right? If they wanted A to win, then um, they would first do B against C and then B would win. And then they would take the winner of that and match it against A. So that's A versus B up, A wins. But if they didn't like A, they could say, okay, first what we'll do is have A versus C and then the winner faces B. And so A versus C, oops, C wins. Then B versus C, B wins. So now B's the winner, right? So you see how the order of the elections there, given the same preferences of the people, would lead to uh, different outcomes. Okay, so that's why it shouldn't be the case in an ideal system of aggregating people's subjective preferences to come up with the 
quote, social preference ranking, the thing should obey transitivity. Because if it didn't, like I say, among other problems, you'd have this issue of cycling where the order of the runoffs could affect the winner and you think that shouldn't matter, right? Because the people's preferences are still the same. It shouldn't be that some quirk of the procedural logistics affects who society thinks is the best candidate. That's the idea. Okay, so so that was known for centuries, that simple majority rule has this cycling problem, what you could call the potential for intransitivity. And notice there, there's nothing weird about the individual rankings. So even if everybody's individual rankings subjectively are all transitive, simple majority rule means the, quote, social ranking could end up being intransitive. It doesn't need to be intransitive. In any particular example of people's preference rankings, maybe simple majority rule generates a social ranking that is itself transitive. But the point is, because this thing should be robust and be able to handle any possible rankings of the outcomes by the members of society, then there could be a scenario in which the rule generates intransitive social rankings. And so that's why this can't be a robust system that's going to handle all of our needs, right? That's, that's the idea. So I'm just, I'm belaboring this one just to make sure you understand the framework and how, how these social choice theorists are thinking about it. Okay, so what Arrow does in, uh, I think he was working on this like in the late 40s and I think he published his dissertation like in 51, if I'm not mistaken. The, the way this story was told to me, and I, you know, so this might be partly apocryphal, but this is the way it was told to me, so I'll go ahead and repeat it, is that originally Arrow had no idea what his result was going to be. He didn't realize he was going to find this incredibly powerful, unexpected result. That originally Arrow was just trying to weed out all of the obviously undesirable mechanisms for aggregating preferences to come up with the, quote, social ranking. And so he just started listing some axioms or some criteria for, well, what, what would a good social ranking mechanism look like? Like, what sort of features would it possess? Just to kind of, you know, throw out the garbage, then focus on the, the remaining surviving candidates that obeyed all of these simple criteria to then analyze them for their pros and cons, right? That was the idea. At least, again, that's the story I heard, okay? He was just trying to clear the water to, to, to weed out the obviously crazy or, or undesirable mechanisms for aggregating preferences into a social ranking so that of the surviving ones that all obeyed these real basic principles, then, you know, the economists and political scientists and whatnot could, could debate among the remaining candidates to see which one's best or, you know, oh, in some circumstances, maybe this one's better than this one, that kind of thing. That, I believe, is what Errol thought he was doing when he set, set out on this path. And so here are his criteria that besides wanting to generate a social preference ranking of all the possible outcomes that was complete and transitive, he also wanted it to obey a principle of uh, Pareto optimality, where if everybody in society thinks A is better than B, then the social ranking has to also think A is better than B. Okay, so that's, pretty, that's a pretty weak condition, right? It's, it's, that's all he said, he said, or sometimes it's called the unanimity principle. If society unanimously thinks that outcome A is better than outcome B, well then whatever rule we use to generate the social rankings, it better be the case that, quote, society also thinks A is better than B. All right, does everyone see how that works? 
Because otherwise that'd be crazy. You're telling me every single person in society thinks A is better than B and yet the social ranking spits out that B is better than A, that would be weird, right? So that's what this very weak Pareto principle means or unanimity principle means, okay? So that was one criterion that Errol thought, surely a sensible, coherent social choice mechanism would obey this principle. Okay, fair enough. Um, another one was that there shouldn't be a dictator. So this is called the non-dictatorship principle. And here, again, this is a very weak condition, meaning it would be hard to violate this, right? So what, what a dictator means in this setting, what an arrow setting, is he's saying there can't exist a single individual in society such that whatever the rankings of all the members of society are over the different possible outcomes of the, you know, the, you know, the states of the world or the choice set, that the social ranking always is identical to that one individual's, all right? Or put the other way, if it were the case that no matter how people ranked things, including this one special individual, so for any possible combination of different ordinal preference rankings of the outcome set by each individual member of society, if no matter how we shuffle those around and change people's preferences because, hey, they could be these, you know, their preferences could be like this, if it were always the case that let's call him individual number 37, if always whatever the rule was to take the social, or sorry, to take the individual idiosyncratic subjective preference rankings of all the people in society to generate a single ranking that we dub society's ranking of these possible outcomes or states of the world, if no matter what, that rule always ends up making it such that when you look at society's rankings, they are identical to what individual, shoot, what did I say, 37? <laughs> I forget what number I said the guy was. But that one, guys, if it's always the case that, quote, society ranks things exactly as that one person ranks them subjectively, then that person is a dictator. That person always gets his way. Society's preferences always exactly mirror his own. And that's the sense in which Arrow would say that person is a dictator in this framework. And he says that can't be the case. The rules... So, so to be clear, Errol's not saying merely that the rules can't just say by definition the way we, we compute or calculate society's rankings. We just look at this one guy, 37's rankings, and then, and then reproduce them. Errol's saying, I don't care what the complicated mechanisms are or whatever, but if the result is always, no matter what, that the social ranking happens to mirror this one guy's rankings, then he's a dictator. So let me just make sure I didn't, with that clarification, make you swing the pendulum too far the other way. It's okay if in any particular instance, the social ranking happens to be identical to some person in society's rankings, you know, and especially if, if it's, a, if it's a, um, not a complicated system, like if there's only five things to choose from and you've got millions of people, then given the way millions of people are going to rank the five things, and then the way, quote, society is going to rank the five things, there's probably going to be lots of copies, right? That the social ranking of the five things, there's probably going to be lots of people in the population who say, oh, wow, I, I rank those five things exactly as society does. That doesn't mean there's a bunch of dictators. What it means to be a dictator is to say, no matter what, no matter how we theoretically uh, had each of the millions of people in society rank those five things, if the social ranking of those five things is always identical to what Mr. 37 thinks, then Mr. 37 is a dictator, okay? 
And, so, and again, so now that you understand what a dictator means in this framework, Arrow is saying that that can't exist. There can't be such a person like that for this to be, you know, a social ranking. Otherwise, that would just be saying Mr. 37 always just decides and gets, you know, so society's rankings mash his. Okay. So again, a very weak condition, right? To say whatever the social ranking mechanism, however it works, it can't have this kind of an outcome. That seems like a pretty reasonable thing for Arrow to say. Okay, just like the unanimity principle seemed pretty reasonable. And now the last condition is less intuitive. It's called the independence of irrelevant alternatives or IIA. And here in words, what it means is, and I say in words because formally it's actually really hard to write the thing out symbolically. It's cumbersome. But the, the spirit of what it's trying to say is take the rankings, the idiosyncratic subjective rankings of all the members of society over the choice set and then you generate the social rankings and now if you say okay let's look at uh, outcome x and outcome y and if the social ranking now says that oh x is better than y given this particular listing of what everybody in society thinks and their total rankings of all the different things that could be and society says x is better than y in this instance what IIA says, the independence of irrelevant alternatives says, is that whenever the members of society rank X and Y the way they did in this instance, then the social ranking of X and Y has to stay the same. Okay? And so another way of putting it is to say, however the rule works, to say what does society think of X versus Y? Again, the, an X and Y are two elements drawn from the set of all possible outcomes. Whatever the social ranking says of X and Y, that can only depend on what each person in society thinks about X and Y, right? In other words, that's all the information you would need. You would just ask each person in society, how do you rank X versus Y? And they would tell you, you know, they would either, there's one of three things they would tell you. They'd say either I strictly prefer X to Y or I strictly prefer Y to X or they would say I am indifferent between X and Y, right? And so the idea is the, the rule that takes everybody's individual subjective preferences and then combines them to spit out what's the social preference between those two elements, those two alternatives. The rule, the only input that it can use is how each person feels about X and Y, giving you one of those three answers. Because remember, in, originally in terms of the framework, what's being plugged into the mechanism, the inputs are not just how people feel about X and Y, it's how people feel and rank every single possible outcome that could exist, okay? So I, th I think you're probably getting an idea of, okay, that's, you know, of what it means, but now intuitively, well, why, why did Arrow insist on that? And so the, the name sheds light. So again, it's called the independence of irrelevant alternatives. So the idea is it would be kind of weird if, let's say everybody felt a certain way about Trump versus Biden. And then you ask the social welfare function, okay, between Trump and Biden, how does society feel? Is Trump better than Biden? Is Biden better than Trump? Or are they the same? You know, is society indifferent between the two? And so everybody, you know, gives their reports, their individual subjective preference rankings over all the possible candidates. And then the, the social welfare ordering tells you whether Trump's better than Biden or Biden's better than Trump or they're indifferent. And then someone says, oh, you know what? Actually, I filled out my form incorrectly. Um, 
I originally had Trump as first, Biden as second, and um, Jorgensen as third, but I, I want to switch my ranking of, of Biden and Jorgensen. That I, me- I meant to put Jorgensen as second and Biden as third place, and Trump is still first place in my mind. And so, there, and so the, the idea is that should not change the social preference ranking of Trump versus Biden. Because if you think about it, in that example I just went through, the person originally said, Trump is best, Biden is second, Jorgensen's third, and then changes, oh, wait, wait sorry, I, I wrote that wrong. It's Trump is first, Jorgensen is second, and Biden is third. And so the idea is that person didn't change the fact that he was telling you, I think Trump is better than Biden, right? Because whether, because in both of those cases, Trump was first, and then the, originally he had Biden second, and then he changed it to make Biden third. But either way, that person thought Trump was strictly better than Biden. And so really all the person changed was, what are my views of Biden versus Jordanson? That's what was wrong originally, and I switched it. And so the independence of irrelevant alternatives is saying, um, changing your rankings on two things that aren't the two items under discussion should not change how society ranks the two things under discussion. Okay, so that's that's what it is. And um, what that's driving home, in case you know, you're trying to ponder why should that be, it's actually, if you think it through, it's, it's driving home the fact that these are ordinal preference rankings. Okay, because you might, intuitively, you might think, well, no, because if the person's now moving Biden from second down to third place, maybe that means society should rank Biden a little bit less. And so maybe, you know, if originally it had Biden ahead of Trump and then that person changes how he views Biden versus Jorgensen and puts Biden down to third, maybe now that should flip so that society thinks Trump's better than Biden. And the the reason you wouldn't do that or, or the, the issue is you're saying, well, no, because that that person all along was telling you whatever that person's contribution, if you will, to the social outcome, you know, the, the first one, the person was saying Trump's better than Biden and the second one, Trump's still better than Biden. It's not that they're saying, oh no, I really, or originally I thought Trump was a little bit better than Biden because Biden was second. And then after I've, you know, fiddled with my answer, now I'm saying Trump's way better than Biden because I moved Biden down to third place. Uh, you can't talk like that because the rankings are just ordinal. All you really know is that Trump is better than Biden. So it's a very Austrian uh, per- perspective, believe it or not. And, and it's not in case what I'm saying is confusing, you just keep in mind, even if you believed in cardinal utility, you actually don't know that all of a sudden the person thought Trump was way better than Biden. It could be that you, you increased your view of Jorgensen, right? So the person who originally said Trump's first, Biden second, Jorgensen's third. Oh, wait a minute, I changed my mind. It's Trump, Jorgensen, Biden. Even if you believed in cardinal intensity of psychological happiness from the candidates, that change would not lead you to be able to say the person actually now likes Trump even more than Biden than before. It could be that the person learned more about Jorgensen and said, oh, she's actually better than I realized. And you move Jorgensen up in your ranking system and that's what makes Biden fall into third place. Believe it or not, it could be that the gap between Trump and Biden got smaller psychologically if you believed in cardinal intensity of satisfaction, right? Maybe originally Trump got a ranking of 100 in your mind in terms of utils, and Biden had 90, and Jorgensen had 80. And then after you got new information, 
you said, oh, Trump's still 100. Biden moves up to 94. So Biden, you like Biden more than before. And so now he's closer to Trump. But Jorgensen, you moved up to 98. And so that's why now in the new ordinal ranking, Trump's one, Jorgensen's two, and Biden's three, even though Biden is now closer to Trump in your absolute psychic intensity scale, right? So I don't mean to be confusing people here, but I'm saying don't, I'm trying to defend the IA assumption and to say um, what it's really doing procedurally is saying we're not going to believe there's cardinal utility out there. We're saying what people are giving us is the ordinal rankings and they're saying, so it should be, however the rule works, the way society chooses between outcomes X and Y, all that really should matter to that is how does each individual rank X and Y? And that it should be irrelevant if you tell me, oh, but the way they view X versus Z is such and such. They say, I don't need to know that. I'm not asking about X versus Z. I'm asking about X versus Y. Okay, so the last thing I'll mention in case you think that, oh, well, well in the real world, people aren't like that. Well, I went, I went and reviewed the proof just to make sure this. In the proof itself, it, IIA is not assumed to apply to the, any individual's rankings. Okay, so Arrow's theorem is not requiring that every individual in society obeys IIA. Okay, it, it, I actually, now that I'm saying that, I don't even know if that would make sense. What would that even mean? But in any event, in case you think that, oh, people aren't like that in the real world or so they have all kinds of weird things that form their preferences, it, it doesn't matter. That's a non sequitur because all Arrow's theorem requires is that the social welfare ordering, the ranking of society's preferences only depends on how people feel about those two elements under consideration when society ranks those two elements, okay? So with those principles, Arrow showed, okay, so given that we're going to have those principles, the first two of which were completely obvious and non-objectionable, the third one's a little bit more mysterious, but I think sounds reasonable enough when I tell it to you and you understand what it means. Guess what? We're, so we're going to weed out any possible social choice mechanism that violates one or more of those criteria and just focus on the ones that survive. And guess what? Brrr, drum roll, please. You're now looking at the empty set by adopting those three criteria, you've eliminated every possible social choice mechanism by which you're going to map from subjective individual preference rankings into a single, quote, social preference ranking. That there does not exist a procedure to map that, that obeys all, the, all three principles. So the last thing I'll do here is just very quickly give you the the plan of the proof, the, the, the strategy of the proof, how it proceeds, because it's, it's gorgeous. Ralphie's dad from a Christmas story says, it's indescribably beautiful when he sees it. It's better than the lamp. Um, and again, if you like this, go to subscribe to Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, particularly to get the, uh, the special deal he's given for Black Friday through Cyber Monday to take advantage of that. And you'll see, I'll, I have a whole lecture where I go through the proof step by step. But the plan is, the scope of it is, and this is actually Amartya Sen. So the, the guy's last name is S-E-N. This is his proof. So I, Arrow proved it one way, and then Amartya Sen came up with a cooler, simpler proof that proves the same thing. So by the way, if you don't know that, that's what's neat when it comes to formal proofs of things. Like in geometry, there's a lot of different ways you can prove the Pythagorean theorem. It's not that there's just one way. And so likewise here, Arrow proved it a certain way 
And then Amartya Sen, I think, came up with an even more elegant, simpler proof, but it's still Arrow's theorem. He's the one that realized this was a true thing. And then Amartya Sen just came up with a cleaner, quicker way to demonstrate it. So uh, the way the proof works is it says, let's assume that we have a social welfare or sorry, I'm, I'm using the, the economics terms. I'm, I want to stay consistent with how I've been talking about this episode. Let's assume we've come up with a mechanism, a rule that maps from the individual subjective preference rankings of everybody in society into a single ranking that we'll call the social ranking. And we'll assume that this mechanism, however it works, obeys. So the, the rankings so constructed are complete and transitive and obey the weak Pareto principle or what we could call the unanimity principle that if everybody in society thinks A is better than B, then the social ranking also thinks A is better than B. And it obeys the independence of irrelevant alternatives so that for, again, I'm just restating what these conditions mean. For any possible listing of all the ways people in society might feel about things, if that, if a, if a particular one generates an outcome where the social ranking says A is better than B, then anytime people's rankings have the same for each person relationship of A versus B as it did in the first one, well, then that can't flip how society feels about A and B, right? So again, another way of putting it is all that really matters when society is thinking about or when we're trying to say what's the social ranking of A versus B, all that can really go into that is you ask each individual person, how do you feel about A versus B? Just talking about those two right now. And the person's one of three possible answers are all you can use to then say how society should feel about A versus B, okay? And so what Sen's proof showed is if you give me those, then I can prove to you necessarily that there must exist a dictator, that the only way you can have a mechanism mapping from the social, or sorry, the individual preference rankings into a single social one that obeys, that you know, the ranking is complete and transitive, non-dictator, oh, sorry, uh, unanimity and independence of irrelevant alternatives, the only way that can happen is necessarily now someone must be a dictator in Arrow's sense of that term. And hence, it's impossible to come up with a ranking mechanism that doesn't involve a dictator since the other two conditions imply there must be a dictator, right? So that's how it works. Uh, I'll stop the discussion there because it's getting a little bit technical. I promise you though, the way they prove it is even more astounding than the result because the result is pretty shocking in and of itself. Who the heck would have thought those weak sort of intuitive conditions would have ruled out any possibility of doing it? And yet Sen's proof, at least, I've never read Arrow's proof, so I don't know if his is this cool as well. But the way Sen does it, he has these two intermediate conditions that are shocking in and of themselves. And then once you have those under your belt, you just keep invoking them and you, and you quickly... The, the way it works is, just to give you a little hint, Sen shows that if you have a, a group in the society who get their way when it comes to issue A versus B, then they necessarily get their way over every possible issue. And so that's kind of surprising. You think just because a certain group, if they all feel a certain way about A versus B, then that means society does, that that implies they get their way over every possible, out, you know, two, two choices. And then he also showed if there is such a group like that, then within the group, there's a subset who get their way over everything. And so you can like keep shrinking the group that's decisive over any two issues. And you just keep doing that and doing that and doing it until you end up with just one person. 
and that person's a dictator. <laughs> so it's um, like, you can't believe it. And you just keep looking at the proof and like, no, this is right. Like it's, it's shocking. All right. So last thing I'll mention about that is the reason I just adore teaching Arrow's theorem. And I did this in undergrad when I taught a game theory class at Hillsdale is you don't need any special math background. Like if you've understood the stuff I've said in this episode, that's all you need. Like there's, so there's some notation to keep it, to make it rigorous, but you can learn everything from scratch. You, you have, don't need to have any prior background. You just have to be willing to sit there for a half an hour and read this thing and follow the argument. And then when you're done, you're like, wow, now I understand Errol's impossibility theorem. This is amazing. So that's why it's a real fun one to do. That's a shocking result. And yet you can teach it to somebody who's just willing to sit there for half an hour and listen to what you're saying and see what the definitions are and so on. Okay. So that's the discussion there. I will wrap it up. So again, big picture, this was an incredibly powerful result that arguably should have just stopped <laughs> people talking about social choice in its tracks. And they should just say, wow, this is a dead end. Just like Gödel's theorem kind of showed that, no, this, this approach to try to place all of mathematics on an axiomatic foundation, there's just this qualitative limit on what we can do. Like th this is, this is not going to work the way we thought reality was, is no longer the case. Likewise with this, people should have said, yeah, there's something about individual preferences and they're subjective and you really can't take them and combine them into a quote social ranking. There's a serious logical problem with that. So I think Austrians in particular, who've always stressed subjectivism and ordinal rankings and that kind of thing and how you can't have interpersonal utility comparisons, I think they should just love this result and yet barely anybody ever talks about it. So I'm talking about it. Again, if you want to learn more, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 166 to see the link from me over to Tom Woods Liberty Classroom so I can uh, get a little piece of the action and you can learn some stuff too. Thanks for your attention, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving, depending on when you're listening to this. And I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com. <laughs>